Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. England's greatest playwright, William Shakespeare, is largely responsible for shaping the popular images of the kings of England of the period we now enter. Richard II, Henry V and Henry VI are among those with famous plays named after them. Though fantastic works of literature in their own right, it is important, as with any other source, to always cast a critical eye on their historical accuracy and bear in mind possible biases of the writer or his contemporaries. As for the Tudor period specifically, it was a time when the English monarchy still laid serious claims to French lands, hence former rulers such as Edward III or Henry V, who pursued warlike ambitions abroad, were treated as heroes. This view then continued through the centuries. Welcome to a history of Europe, the Battle of Agincourt, 1415, seen probably as the most famous and glorious of all battles of the Hundred Years' War. Part 1 of 2 Between 1337 and 1360, King Edward III of England and his son Edward the Black Prince had fought a successful military campaign against France. As described in an earlier podcast, the French King John II was captured at the Battle of Poitiers in 1356, and only later released in exchange for a huge ransom and the signing of the Treaty of Brittany. King Edward agreed to drop his claim for the French royal throne, and in return, large areas of France were brought within the administration of the English. The area under his sovereign control was of greater extent than any English king had enjoyed since 1204. An opportunity to gain yet further influence on the continent appeared to present itself in the early 1360s. Edward III's plan was to marry his fourth son, Edmund, to Margaret, the only child of Louis de Marley, Count of Flanders. A hand in marriage with Margaret was a fabulous prize, since she stood to inherit an impressive set of territories. Flanders, Nevers and Rethel from her father, the counties of Burgundy and Artois from her paternal grandmother, and the duchies of Limburg and Brabant from her aunt. Had the marriage gone ahead, Edward's influence would have extended over a vast block of territory on the northern and western frontiers of France. However, King Charles V of France followed these plans. 
He put pressure on Pope Urban V, who resided in Avignon, to refuse dispensation for the marriage of Edmund and Margaret. Next, Charles persuaded Louis de Marlay to marry Margaret to his own son, Philip, instead in exchange for the return of the towns that the Flemish had lost to France in 1305. Charles could look forward to the future succession of his son, known to history as Philip of Burgundy, to the county of Flanders. An initially promising situation in Brittany was also not going well for Edward. Duke John V, having been restored to control of his duchy with the help of the English, bowed to pressure from the local barons and decided to pay homage to Charles of France instead of to Edward of England. The next years would continue to see the Bretons attempt to retain a degree of local independence when either the French or English appeared to become too assertive in their lands. Another region where Edward was attempting to gain influence was Spain. In 1362, he secured an alliance with Pedro the Cruel of Castile, which gave him use of the Castilian fleet as a deterrent against potential French moves. But Pedro was deposed by his illegitimate half-brother, Henry of Trastamara, with the help of French nobles, including the Duke of Anjou. Pedro fled to the court of the Black Prince in Aquitaine and sought English aid. Prince Edward readily agreed and led an army into Spain, defeating Trastamara at the Battle of Najera on the 3rd of April 1367. Although the military campaign had been successful, it proved a pyrrhic victory. Pedro refused to pay the Black Prince the promised reward for his reinstatement on the throne, and less than two years later was once more overthrown by Trastamara, and this time was murdered. An additional problem for the English was that the cost of the Black Prince's campaign in Spain had to be met from increased taxation in Aquitaine, which triggered resistance amongst the locals. The Count of Armagnac, who held lands in both French and English lands, appealed to King Charles of France. Without hesitation, Charles took the opportunity to exploit the situation and undermine the English, in a similar way as his ancestors had done ever since the time of Philip Augustus. When challenged that this contravened the Treaty of Brittany, Charles replied that France had never ratified the renunciation of sovereignty over Aquitaine. King Edward advised his son to lower the tax burden, but the prince could see no other way of restoring his finances. Charles had learned the lessons from Cressy and Poitiers. Instead of confronting the English in open battle, he ordered his commanders to make numerous small-scale targeted offensives. Towns with only a small English garrison could be attacked, foraging parties ambushed, supply convoys destroyed, and inhabitants persuaded, bribed or coerced into changing sides. In 1369, when open warfare broke out once more, Charles announced that he had confiscated Aquitaine. The Black Prince was furious, but unable to respond. He was suffering from a disease, possibly dysentery or malaria, which necessitated him being carried everywhere in a litter. Forced to return to England, he left his younger brother, John of Gaunt, as ruler of Aquitaine and other English territories. The ruling faction of Castile were now even more keen to assist France since John was married to the daughter of Pedro the Cruel. An alliance between France and Castile was significant because the Castilians had one of the largest and best equipped fleets in Europe. This made the English coasts and merchant shipping more vulnerable. 
1372, a Castilian fleet was able to push back an English relief force sent to support La Rochelle. Consequently, this key port, and with it the hold of Poitou, fell to the French. Negotiations for peace were held during a two-year truce between 1375 and 1377, but none of the proposals put forward by the papal negotiators were likely to succeed. While the French were reluctant to give up any of their recent gains, the English were still committed to the Treaty of Brittany, and so unwilling to make concessions themselves. The two-year Anglo-French truce ran out in June 1377, by chance the same month as the death of the English king. The last few years were a sorry end to an otherwise very successful reign. Not only was Edward increasingly unwell, but he witnessed a series of military defeats and also the deaths of close friends, and most significantly his eldest son and heir, the Black Prince. He was therefore succeeded by the ten-year-old son of the Black Prince, Richard of Bordeaux, who became Richard II. The French thought to take advantage of this by stepping up raids on the south coast of England and encouraging Gascon defections. Richard inherited his grandfather's claims to the French royal title and the rights bestowed by Brittany. Under his rule, the English changed policy. In order to save costs, they reduced the number of mounted raids or chevauchées in French lands, instead focusing on the defence of the ports still held on the French coast, especially Calais, Brest in Brittany and Cherbourg. Although the intention was to reduce costs, the maintenance of garrisons to hold these towns still proved very expensive. The people of England were fed up with decades of extra taxes, especially a poll tax to pay for the war, triggering the Peasants' Revolt in 1381. For a brief period, this major rebellion among all classes of society seriously threatened the English ruling class, but was finally suppressed with brute force. Richard II, having ascended to the throne as a boy, always struggled to assert his authority over the leading nobles of the land, especially his uncle, John of Gaunt. Details of this period remain obscure, but the young king seems to have been less enthusiastic about the war with France than his grandfather or most of his advisers. According to the contemporary Philippe de Mezières, Richard had a personal dislike for war, and later historians have seen him as being prepared to give up his French title in order to achieve peace. The situation in the French royal court was not dissimilar to that in England, also with a minor on the throne. Charles V died in September 1380, leaving as heir his 11-year-old son, who was crowned Charles VI. For the first few years of his reign, the government was entrusted to his four uncles, who squandered the financial resources of the kingdom, as royal funds drained, new taxes had to be raised, which caused several revolts. In 1388, Charles VI dismissed his uncles and brought back to power his father's former advisers. Political and economic conditions in the kingdom improved significantly, and Charles earned the epithet, the Beloved. But in August 1392, en route to Brittany, with his army, Charles suddenly lost his sanity. He slew four knights and almost killed his brother, Louis of Orléans. From then on, Charles's bout of insanity became more frequent and of longer duration. During these attacks he had delusions, believing he was made of glass, or denying he had a wife and children. He could also attack servants or run until exhausted, wailing that he was threatened by his enemies. Between crises there were intervals of months during which Charles was relatively sane, and so was able to attain the throne.
1395, the French heard of plans of Richard of England to marry Yolanda of Aragon. Fearful of the Anglo-Spanish alliance, they hurriedly sent diplomats to offer to Richard the hand in marriage of Charles VI, six-year-old daughter Isabella. Richard, realising that the lack of leadership in the French court gave them the upper hand in negotiations, agreed on condition of France, agreeing to the reconfirmation of the Brittany terms, plus the provision of Normandy, Anjou and Maine to the sons of the marriage. In 1396, a 28-year truce was agreed, and an uneasy period of peace began. Disagreements about policies towards France were certainly a major bone of contention between Richard and the hawks of his administration, and in part contributed to the young king's downfall. When in 1397 Richard agreed to give up control of the port of Brest in the vain hope of a permanent peace with France, several leading nobles such as the Duke of Gloucester and the Earl of Arundel were furious and publicly criticised their king. Richard became paranoid and fearing a coup had his critics condemned to death. Having alienated himself from many men of power, Richard was unable to gather sufficient forces to resist a military campaign against him, led by his cousin, the son of John of Gaunt, Henry Bolingbroke. Henry quickly gained enough support to depose and imprison Richard and have himself declared king and became King Henry IV. Richard is thought to have starved to death in captivity on or around the 14th of February, 1400. The popular view of Richard has been influenced by Shakespeare's play Richard II. Shakespeare's Richard was a cruel, vindictive and irresponsible king who attained a semblance of greatness only after his fall from power. His modern critics believe his difficult upbringing made him insecure, capricious and secretive. In his last two years, they say, he acted overly harsh to his enemies, exiling or having executed those who opposed him. Gordon Corrigan, for example, writes that, quote, The death of Richard II ended a period of vacillation and weak government, which precluded any serious resumption of the campaign to realise the cause of English France. End quote. Such views are, of course, based on the premise that the English war against France was a noble cause worth fighting for. The other side of the argument is that much of the criticism of the king is unfair and made in hindsight. Perhaps Richard's policy to make peace with France and reduce the burden of taxation on the people was entirely justified. Richard was an intelligent, shrewd and imaginative individual, and since his accession as a child had to deal with powerful magnates who worked for their own ends. Whatever his faults, the deposition of an anointed king set a dangerous precedent which contributed later to a period of civil war in England known as the War of the Roses. The truce with France might have run its course had Richard remained king, and time might well have legitimised the status quo that it maintained. Instead, his deposition and murder ended the most coherent attempt yet to lift the burden of the Anglo-French war. The principal reasons for Richard's deposition had been his tendency to autocratic rule, but the French were convinced that it was due to his policy of peace. This view was encouraged when Henry IV circulated letters claiming that Richard was planning to sell off all the English positions in France. The French were also outraged at the idea of deposing a king, something they never contemplated even at the lowest point of their mad king's fortunes, and they never recognised Henry IV's kingship of England.
they initially pursued a hostile line, hoping in vain to persuade the Gascons to drop their English allegiance. But Henry was astute in appointing, unusually, a Gascon-born seneschal, or local governor, which helped encourage their loyalty. Henry also dispatched sufficient troops to the region, although he never fulfilled his intention of leading them himself, perhaps fearful of challenges to his kingship if he left England. Henry was generally popular among both the leading magnates and the general population. In France, meanwhile, Charles's illness had caused a vacuum of power in the royal court, contributing to a civil war among the French nobles. The leaders of the competing factions were on one side John the Fearless, the ruler of both Burgundy and Flanders, and on the other side Louis, Duke of Orléans, the brother of Charles VI. John of Burgundy was prepared to come to terms with the English in order to pursue his own interest in France and to protect from his trade, whereas Louis of Orléans coveted Aquitaine and also had ambitions in Italy. Their personal conflict came to a head when on the night of the 23rd of November, 1407, only a few days after the supposed reconciliation between the two, Louis was attacked in a Paris street and bludgeoned to death. The assassination was widely believed to have been carried out on the orders of John of Burgundy, splitting France into two armed camps. The cause of the late Duke of Orléans was taken up by his son's father-in-law, the Count of Armagnac, who gave his name to the Orleanist faction. This group controlled, in broad terms, most of France south of the River Loire, while the Burgundians held the north, including crucially Paris, as well as Flanders and most of the Low Countries. Normandy, meanwhile, was disputed between the two. In 1411, when an Armagnac army laid Paris under siege, John of Burgundy appealed to Henry IV for help. Henry was beginning to suffer from serious health problems. He had a disfiguring skin disease, and more seriously suffered acute attacks of illness. With both kings periodically incapacitated, the situation was highly unpredictable, and depended on which ruler was the most healthy or lucid at any one time. The advantage the English enjoyed was that they were, unlike the French, reasonably united, and so able to exploit divisions among their enemies. As King Henry was unwell at the time of the Duke of Burgundy's plea, it was his son, also named Henry, who took command and agreed to send military assistance, possibly in return for promise of help in the recovery of Normandy. If true, this is a significant anticipation of the young prince's intentions once he became king. In the next year, 1412, Henry IV, now recovered, was approached by the Orleanists, who offered the restitution of Aquitaine in return for agreeing not to help the Burgundians. In a treaty of Bourges of the 18th of May, 1412, they confirmed that Henry should have the duchy, quote, completely and in full liberty as his ducal predecessors, end quote. Not only this, but the French dukes also agreed that on their deaths, the lands bestowed upon the English by Brittany, but since retaken by the French, would be returned to English authority. The king sent his second son, Thomas, the head of a force to help the Orleanists, though in the end they were not required to fight. The gravity of the political divisions in France were clear, and the French monarchy at its lowest ebb. The ruling class of England, on the other hand, were in a strong position. The Lancastrian dynasty of Henry IV were now firmly established. Rebellion Wales had been successfully put down, and the Scottish were kept quiet, with their young King James I held as hostage in England. 
In addition, the English military community had already shown its willingness to go to war in France. In March 1413, Henry IV died from a further bout of the illness from which he long suffered. He was left to his son, who ascended the throne as Henry V, to pick up the baton and take up leadership for the next invasion of France. I would like to give thanks for some really useful feedback given to me in the last couple of weeks from different listeners. Uh, it's really great to hear from you. You can get hold of me on the Facebook page for History of Europe Gay Battles or on my blog www.historyeurope.net uh, There's a Twitter account at History Europe KB or you can write to me directly at carl at historyeurope.net Also thank you for some nice reviews that have come in just recently. If you enjoy this podcast, I would encourage you to put a review on iTunes. Uh, it would help the podcast and really mean a lot to me. Um, and lastly, I would like to give a quick plug to my patreon.com site, uh, where for $3 a month you can sign up and listen to some extra bonus material. So thank you very much for listening to a History of Europe Key Battles, and I hope you can join me again next week for the concluding part of the Battle of Agincourt, the famous battle of Henry V and the French. Thank you, and goodbye. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.